Today's reading is from Exodus chapter 33, verses 9 to 23. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for mortals shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The reading is from John 13, verses 21 to 35. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, once again, you have chosen to be with us. And you invite us to choose to be with you this morning. May our senses be overwhelmed by your presence. This I pray in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. Amen. Two days ago, we celebrated our COVID Christmas. In the middle of the giving and receiving of gifts, a celebratory feast, albeit with fewer people as a rule, and our video conferencing meetings and phone calls with those we love but unfortunately are not in our bubble, we have had cause, we have had opportunity to consider yet again the meaning of Christmas. The birth of Jesus, God made human, God with us, Emmanuel. Last week, Tyler preached so very well about God with us, that God with us is who God is and and who we are as well. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a much more intimate reality than that of Jesus with his disciples. Yet the very constancy and familiarity of God with and in us makes it so easy for us to forget, doesn't it? Much like we forget about our own breathing and the beating of our hearts. And so we need to be reminded of that truth. And while we need to be reminded more often than once a year, certainly we are reminded again at Christmas. This week, we will continue with the extraordinary, the outrageous theme of Emmanuel, God with us. And our question today is, what are the implications of the reality of God with us? 
Our lectionary readings for today point out some of those implications. Last week, Tyler started with Ahaz, Isaiah, and the political drama of the ancient Near East in the 8th century before Christ. This week, we start with Moses and the Israelites and the religious drama of the Exodus some centuries earlier. Our focus will be verses 12 to 16 of our text, but first, we need some context. The Exodus is the story of the deliverance of the people of Israel from centuries of slavery in Egypt. Egypt knew nothing about the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew idols. Boy, did they know idols. Egypt had the, most, the largest and most complex pantheon of gods in the ancient, of, ancient world. Isis, Osiris, Horus, Anubis, Ra, Bastet, the cat goddess for you cat lovers, and so, so many more. And their images dominated the art, the architecture, even the landscape of Egypt. Build big or go home seemed to be the ancient Egyptian motto. And for centuries, these were the religious realities that surrounded the Israelites who had seemingly been abandoned by their own God, if they remembered that God at all. Then came the exodus, brought about by the undeniable and terrifying power of that one true God. That God of their campfire tales and late-night whispers was real, after all. Who would have thought? And there they were, wandering through the Sinai, following Moses. Now, maybe they saw the pillars of cloud and fire that were the physical manifestations of God's guiding presence, and maybe they didn't. Maybe all some of them saw was the back of Moses, about whom some said he was a crazy old man who had led them out into the wilderness just to die. So, when Moses disappeared up the mount of God to receive God's law and didn't return for such an unreasonable and unbelievable period of time, It made perfect sense to some of them to return to the only religious practices their people had known for centuries. And so, while Moses was having the epitome of mountaintop spiritual experiences, the people imposed their will upon Aaron to build them a God they could see and worship that would feel familiar and safe. Because after all, that crazy old man must be dead by now. And where would they be without someone or something to believe? to trust, to follow. The idolatry was a deal-breaker for God. God would destroy this impossible people and create a people just for Moses. But Moses interceded, reminding God how that might look to the rest of the world. The world would, perhaps justly, conclude that the people had been delivered from slavery only to be destroyed by this God in the wilderness. And that wouldn't do much for God's global reputation. God's relented in the face of Moses' intercession and came up with a compromise. And in the beginning of our chapter, chapter 33, God suggests that he would send an angel to lead Moses and the people into the victory in the promised land. But God would not go with them because God was pretty sure they would test him again and he would destroy them somewhere along the way for their stiff-necked and rebellious ways. And that brings us to our reading today and the ongoing, perhaps even impertinent intercession of Moses on behalf of the Israelites. And the verses I want us to dig into today, verses 15 and 16. And Moses said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does it even mean for God not to be with us? Isn't God everywhere all of the time? Yes, that is absolutely true. God is everywhere. There is no place that God is not. And lest we're tempted to think the doctrine of the omnipresence of God is an innovation of the marriage of Christianity with Greek philosophy, remember the powerful and poetic words of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Okay, so maybe Moses' understanding of God was too primitive to realize that God was everywhere all of the time. Could that be it? I don't think so. I think what we are dealing with here is the fact that God is present in different ways and to different degrees. Yes, God is everywhere present, but God is not sovereign everywhere. God is not the king in the hearts of everyone. There are and there always have been people to whom God is present, but whose presence remains unacknowledged. God is the unknown lover, wooing, imploring, seeking, but from the outside, knocking, knocking, but never gaining entry. The presence about which Moses speaks is that of sovereign and shepherd, after whom the people are named and by whom they are formed. If God is not their God in that way, there's no point in going any further. They might as well stay right where they are, or God might as well destroy them, including Moses, right there in the wilderness. What an extraordinary heart of intercession. We know that the people drove Moses crazy too. And had he not herded sheep for 40 years, he'd be terribly ill-equipped to lead this people. But as crazy-making as they were, Moses loved this people. And a quick aside to spiritual leaders listening, note how Moses describes the people. You know, you might recall that when he demanded their release from Pharaoh, he referred to them as my people. However, here he reminds God and perhaps himself They are God's people. Whether you are archbishop, bishop, rector, curate, small group leader, or ministry team coordinator, the people are God's people entrusted to your care and leadership for a season. Reminding ourselves of that truth on a regular basis will help weed out a whole host of poor leadership choices. But let's dig into the Emmanuel heart of this passage. Moses says, Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Here, we begin to get to the implications of God with us. God, if you are not with us, not in the omnipresent sense, but in the sovereign and shepherd sense, if you are not with us in that way, how will we be distinct from the world around us? How will we be distinct from the world around us? Now, it may be that you really don't want to be distinct, that you want to blend in, be indistinguishable from the world around you. I know I felt like that at times. 
I can remember as a teenager in high school coming back from a volleyball game in another town with, some, with my teammates and being invited to a party by one of the girls. I had to say no because I had to go to Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study that night. Oh, how I wished I wasn't different. How I wished I wasn't the preacher's kid who had to be inside the church every time the doors were open. But as I've grown in my faith over the years, I've come to understand the call to be different as a high and a holy calling and a remarkable honor. But what kind of different are we talking about? Over the centuries, there have been many understandings and expressions of what people believed it meant to be different, to be separate from the larger world. Some have believed it means, at least in part, distinctive clothing. Some have believed it means remaining physically separate from the world around, keeping their own company and dealing only with those of like faith, a believer's ghetto, if you will. Some believe the distinctiveness is characterized primarily by various forms of abstinence. If it is popular in the larger world around us, we may well have to renounce it. Now, I would not presume to know the nuances of the working out of the presence of God among a people. And I've encountered, either in person or in their writings, some true giants of faith who adhere to distinctives like the ones I've just mentioned. So I don't dismiss them as irrelevant. But, with respect and humility, I don't think those distinctives are the core distinctives of a people to whom God has come and with whom God journeys. So in the time left to us this morning, I want to touch on two of the core distinctives of a people God is with. The first is holiness. This focus comes from our Exodus story. Now there's a temptation to think of holiness primarily as abstinence which I have just suggested may not be a core distinctive. So what do I mean by holiness, if not abstinence? Our story, the larger story I told, not just the reading, points us in the direction of holiness. The Israelites sinned greatly when they turned away from and replaced God with an idol made with their own hands, devoted themselves to that idol, worshipped it, and sought to obey it. And that is the key hint at holiness— Holiness is abandonment to and reliance upon God, to the exclusion of all other people and things to whom we can be devoted and upon whom we want to rely. Holiness is letting nothing get in the way of our pursuit of the God we love with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. There will be abstinence and renunciation, But it won't feel much like abstinence because we are so captivated by the lover of our souls. Those sorts of things will simply pale into the insignificance in comparison to the unsurpassing wonder and beauty of God. And there will be other abstinences that will hurt terribly because we have to give them up for God to become our one true love. But those abstinences are the critically necessary and ongoing process of ordering our loves properly. Like Abraham in the story of the binding of Isaac, sometimes restoring God to the proper place as primary love in our lives, the place from which all other meaningful love can flow, requires a wrenching wrenching renunciation of a good love that threatens to become an idolatry. But the holiness 
is the abandonment to God, not the abandonment of other people or things. We can renounce all manner of people and things and be no more holy because of it. The holiness is the abandonment to God. That holiness is a core distinctive of those to whom God has come and with whom God journeys. The second core distinctive comes from the lectionary gospel reading in John chapter 13, and it is intertwined with the first, and they need to be together. Without this distinctive, holiness can go terribly, terribly askew. The first part of our text tells us the heartbreaking story of Judas and his choice to betray Jesus. And for our purposes this morning, it helps to highlight the difference between the omnipresence and the sovereign presence of God. Jesus was with both Judas and John the Beloved, but he was with them in very different ways, wasn't he? But our focus this morning is on the end of the passage, the new commandment. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And just to make sure they and we forever understand this is a core, dare we say the core, distinctive of a people to whom God has come and by, with whom God journeys, Jesus concludes in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So why does this qualify as a new commandment? If it's new, what was the old one? And why did Jesus feel the need to give a new one? Jesus identified the old commandment in Mark chapter 12 in response to a test from the religious intelligentsia. The test question was, which commandment is the most important of all? To which Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So the old relational love commandment was to love others as we love ourselves. Why would Jesus feel the need to issue a new commandment to replace this one? What's inadequate about it? Well, the painful fact of the matter is that most of us love ourselves and treat ourselves quite badly. Out of an underlying sense of not-enoughness, We either create a delusionally high narrative of ourselves and our worth, or alternatively, we create a self-deprecating or even a self-hating narrative. Either way, we usually treat ourselves quite badly, with vain deceits and conceits and wildly unhealthy self-indulgences, or with harsh and cruel self-recrimination and condemnation. Truth be told, If we love others the way we often love ourselves, we might end up in jail. So Jesus gives the new commandment. I've been with you all these years. I've loved you faithfully. I've spoken the truth with love. I've taught you and served you and I'm about to die for you. I have modeled and on the cross will model the kind of love with which you must love each other. It is a self-sacrificing And it is self-sacrificing before the other has earned that kind of love. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you love like that, even just a little bit, 
everyone will know that you are my disciples. Now a love like that does not gossip. It does not think poorly of the other. It does not disparage or demean. It does not say cruel and hurtful things. It does not return pain for pain. It is not impatient and intolerant. It is not self-centered, but rather God and other-centered. Think 1 Corinthians 13. These, then, are the core distinctives of a people to whom God has come and with whom God journeys. And it turns out that Jesus was right regarding the heart of the law. If we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we tolerate no competitors to that love, if we abandon or relinquish all others and all else for the sake of that love, we will be holy. We will be distinct from everyone around us. And if we love others, not as we love ourselves, because our love for ourselves can't be relied upon, but as Jesus loved us, if we love with a self-sacrificing love before that love is earned, everyone will know that we are distinct, that we are Jesus' disciples. These are the implications of Emmanuel, God with us. These are the consequences of being a people with whom God journeys. These are the results of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may well be inspired by these words and eager to make conscious that which is already present, semi or subconsciously. However, others of you may be completely daunted by these distinctives of the people of God. You may well wonder if you're even a believer. You say to yourself, I can't do that. I know I can't. I'm not even sure I want to. Well, you are at least partly right in your assessment of your spiritual state. None of this is achievable in and by ourselves. And that is why that phrase I just said is so critically important. These are the results of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you have been baptized, the Holy Spirit is in you. And it is the growing presence and power of the Spirit within you that will make these things both desirable and, to a certain degree, possible, never fully, but partially. None of this is natural. None of it is achievable unless the Spirit has increasing jurisdiction in all areas of our lives. But as that becomes increasingly true, we will become increasingly transformed into a distinct people, God's distinct people. And we will be full of joy and gratitude for what and who we, individually and collectively, are becoming. All because of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.